0: Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. It's good to see everyone, and we're in Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28, and we'll begin reading in verse 16 tonight, and we'll read through verse 20, and then that'll be it. So, not it for the night, but that'll be it for the book of Matthew after we finish our study. Okay, Matthew 28, verse 16. Says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to meet together tonight with your body and, Lord, to have before us the very words of life. Lord, we do pray that uh, you would speak to us tonight. Lord, that you would reveal spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Lord, that we would see and understand what it is that you have called us to do. Uh, being that we are your ambassadors and we are your disciples here on this earth, you are our king, and we are to obey your will in all things. <clears throat> and Lord, you have called us to be uh, taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And Lord, we thank you that this calling uh, that you gave to uh, those original disciples of yours, uh, Lord, that we are the beneficiaries of, of such a movement. Lord, knowing that uh, we were ransomed from the feudal ways uh, that were, we inherited from our forefathers, Lord, knowing that uh, our ancestors were pagans, they were idolaters, uh, they were ignorant, they lived in darkness, uh, and were under your condemnation for many years. And yet, Lord, in your kindness, uh, you deemed it uh, good and gracious to send the gospel, Lord, to those areas where our forefathers were, Uh, and that, Lord, in due time, many of them believe that gospel, uh, and it has been handed down to us who are their children. And so, Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy, and also the diligence and faithfulness of future, uh, former generations. And we pray that we would stand, Lord, in this line as well, and that there would be many in the future, Lord, who call upon your name uh, through the witness and through the testimony that we leave here on this earth. So, Lord, would you bless our efforts, and will you continue to spread your kingdom And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. So here we are at the end of the book of Matthew. And we remember that uh, Christ has been resurrected. He has revealed himself uh, to the women and to the disciples. Uh, And now we come to the end where Jesus is going to uh, give them his final commission. Now, there is... Many things that happened in between His resurrection and His ascension into heaven because Jesus was on the earth some 40 days uh, in between that time. And during that time, He spent it with His disciples, teaching them, instructing them, further equipping them after His resurrection to be prepared for the work of ministry that they would carry on. What Jesus began, they will pick up the mantle and then they will carry it forward And again, as we were saying in the prayer, we are the recipients and the beneficiaries of such ministry because none of us are Jews and all of us are Gentile, Gentile sinners. Uh, And at one time, our forefathers uh, worshiped idols. They lived in darkness. They lived in futility. And the reason that we have come to believe is because someone went and made disciples of all the nations, that there was some missionary sent by God to these regions that were living in idolatry. Many of them went at great personal harm and expense, uh, many of them lost their lives. Uh, we were just talking, Mike Morse and I, yesterday, and, and Gideon was there as well, about John Huss, who was a missionary and a, a martyr that was put to death uh, by the Roman Catholics, and, uh, and many others such as him, who died because they were wanting to translate the Bible into the language of the people, or to take the gospel and to give it to people Uh, And and they didn't want them to do those kinds of things. And again, the reason we are where we are today, meeting in such a nice accommodation, having the access, the freedom, the liberty uh, to open the word of God, to study together without fear of someone coming in and hauling all of us off to jail uh, is because of the work and the ministry of those who have come before us. And so we need to be grateful for that, grateful to God, grateful for them and to their memory and what they have done for us. But also we need to do the same for others as well. And insofar as whatever we can do to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, then we need to to do such things, right? For the sake of uh, the kingdom of God, the building up of that kingdom, and also for the good of our fellow man, right? What greater form of love and compassion can we have for our neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what greater thing can we do for our neighbor than to share the gospel with them, to preach uh, the, the Christ to them by which they can be reconciled to God? There is no greater thing that we can do because there's no greater need that each and every man has than the need to have their sins forgiven. And if we were in that situation, living in darkness, living in our sin, would we want someone to come and speak the truth to us, share the gospel with us by which we could have our sins forgiven and be reconciled to God? Well, certainly, We would want someone to do that for us, and someone did do that for us. Well, if we would want someone to do that for us, then what should we do for others? You do to others as you would have them do to you. So this is our mandate, our call, to be faithful, to go and to preach the gospel, and to make disciples of all the nations. So let's pick up in verse 16, and we'll go through, and the majority of our time will be spent in what, again, is commonly called the Great Commission. This commission or this sending out... Uh, of Christ, of His disciples, which is a perpetual mission, a perpetual commission for the church of all ages, right? This is something that they fulfilled, but it is continuing to be fulfilled in each and every generation. And it is our duty and our call as a church to fulfill what Jesus has commanded here. So there, verse 16 and 17. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. So here we remember that Jesus originally revealed Himself to the women. He told the women to go tell His brothers that He had risen, and to tell them to go to Galilee, and then He would meet them there. And this is what He did. And then He spent the 40 days there with them in Galilee in this region, teaching them, instructing them, equipping them, comforting them before His ascension into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And so the 11 disciples went to Galilee. They went to the place that was designated by Jesus. And then there he revealed himself to them. So they themselves also saw the risen Lord, which was one of the criteria of being an apostle, someone who was with them from the beginning and who saw the risen Lord, who could be a uh, one to testify, to give witness to the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here, they see Jesus, and when they do, they worship Him. They worship Him because they know and understand that He is Lord and Savior, right? He is God Himself in human flesh. He still has His human body, though it is resurrected and glorified, but He is God in human flesh, and so they rightly worship Him, right? And it is good and proper for us to worship Christ. They do this. But then some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. And we remember in John chapter 20 that Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples and Thomas was doubtful, right? He refused to believe until he saw it with his own eyes, until he touched Jesus with his own hands. And this is not uh, a commendation of Thomas, but rather shows the weakness of his faith, right? And it is a comfort to us because our faith is also often very weak as well, just as it was with Thomas. So also we many times are filled with doubts, but Jesus does not cast Thomas aside. He does give him a mild chastisement, but at the same time, he confirms his faith, builds it up and then sends him out. And we know at least... Uh, from tradition or church history that Thomas did prove himself to be a faithful disciple of the Lord. And uh, many believe that he was martyred or put to death in modern-day India is where that took place. John 20, 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails... And put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see me and yet believed. So here, Thomas was doubtful. Jesus rebukes him, tells him, don't be doubtful, right? Don't be unbelieving, but rather you should believe. He does what's necessary to confirm his faith. And then he also gives a special blessing to those who do not see Christ and yet believe. Believe on the basis of the testimony of, of the apostles of Jesus Christ, which would be a description of us. Because none of us have ever seen Christ, nor have we touched Him. We've not seen Him with our physical eyes or touched Him with our hands, and yet we believe in the resurrected Lord. Now, our faith is not a blind faith. It's not a stupid faith. We have great reasons for us to believe because we have the testimony of the holy apostles of Christ. were trustworthy men, men that were led by the Spirit of God, and we know that they cannot lie, but what they speak is truthful, and their testimony is sufficient for us to believe it. And then also, of course, the working of the Spirit within us. Then verse 18, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Here, this is the basis or the, uh, for what He will say in verses 19 and 20. right? 19 and 20, this is the command that He expects of the disciples, but the basis for this commandment, right? the authority upon which this commandment resides, is what He says in verse 18. And that is that all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. All authority belongs to Christ. Jesus Christ as both fully God and fully man, right? It's important for us to remember this, that when He is exalted to the right hand of God, when He is given a name that is above every name, it is the name of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus of Nazareth is exalted in that way. Certainly, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He was exalted for all eternity. He had the glory that he shared with his Father for all eternity. And in that sense, he possesses all authority because God is over all things. But here he's saying this not merely as the Son of God, but as the Christ and as the Christ, he is both fully God and fully man. He's saying this as the heir of David, right? As the one who will sit on David's throne and will have an eternal kingdom and his kingdom will know no ends, right? It will be from sea to shining sea, right? It will cover the entire globe from pole to pole, from sea to sea. The kingdom of Christ, it is the entire world. The entire world has been given to Him as His inheritance. This is what Psalm 2 says, Ask of Me, and I will give the nations to you as your inheritance, the end of the earth as your heritage. This is what belongs to Christ. And what is the basis for God granting that to Jesus as both Son of God and Son of Man? It is His death on the cross. His obedience to the point of death even death on the cross. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been given the world, the nations, as His heritage. It belongs to Him. He is the rightful ruler of this entire world, right? And this is why all authority has been given to Him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Davidic King. He has this authority over the world. It belongs to Him. He is the rightful ruler of every kingdom on on the face of this earth. Every corner of the globe belongs to Him as King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords. First Corinthians fifteen First Corinthians fifteen verses twenty five to twenty eight. Actually, let's pick up in verse 24, Fifteen, twenty-four. Then comes the end, when He, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. So, Christ has all authority. However, at this point, His authority is not recognized in this world, right, by the wicked, by the unbelieving. It is recognized in the church, right? We No, no other master and Lord than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the one that we give our ultimate allegiance and our supreme devotion to. But in this present world, many people do not recognize the authority of Christ. But just because they don't recognize the authority of Christ doesn't mean he doesn't have it. He has that authority. It has been given to him by his Father. And he is sitting at his right hand until God puts all of his enemies in subjection, to him and eventually God will do so. So there is no corner of the globe where Jesus does not have authority and all men everywhere are commanded to repent of their sins. God demands that all men everywhere repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ and bow their knee in subjection to him because he is the rightful ruler of this world. There's no authority on earth that exceeds His authority, right? All human authority is subservient. It is beneath the authority of Christ. That means that no ruler, no judge on this earth can contradict Christ. And if they do contradict Christ, and we're put in a dilemma, because we are supposed to submit to the ruling authorities. But if the ruling authorities are expecting us and commanding us to do something that's contrary to what Christ tells us to do, then who do we have to listen to? We have to go to Christ and we have to submit ourselves to Him because all authority has been given to Christ. And whatever authority the rulers have, who do they derive it from? They derive it from Christ. So their authority comes from Him and they don't have the authority to, uh, to overthrow the command of Christ or whatever Christ is seeking to do. Our allegiance, our faithfulness, our obedience must be to Him and to Him alone. So the church, right, the church has the sovereign right to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. And it does not matter if it's a Muslim nation. We have the right given to us by Christ to go into that country and to tell them to quit worshiping their false god the false god of islam and to worship jesus christ we have the authority to go into a hindu country and to tell those hindus to stop worshiping their false gods and to worship jesus christ that he is the true god he is the ruler and lord of this world and you should bow your knee to him and not give it to these worthless idols or any pagan country where they worship spirits where they worship trees, the rocks, the mountains, whatever it is that they worship there, we as Christians have the the right and the authority from Christ to go into those places and to demand, command those people to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Christ. And that is a very compassionate thing for us to do, right? It's good for them for us to do that because this is the way of salvation, There is no salvation in Islam. There's no salvation in Hinduism. There's no salvation in paganism or any other false religion in the world. Where is salvation found? There's only one place of salvation, and that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And all authority belongs to Him. Therefore, we can go to any part of the world and preach the gospel in defiance of any man. Right? No man can tell the church that you cannot come here and preach the gospel. Because whose authority overrides theirs? The authority of Christ. And Christ has all authority. And He has told us to do what? To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, to every nation. Now, that means that sometimes Christian missionaries will be put to death. And that has happened over the course of history. It means sometimes that they will be put in prison. They will be beaten. They will be treated like the scum of the earth. And that has happened throughout the history of the church. But God will reward them. He will honor them and reward them. But ultimately, many times in these places where early missionaries were put to death, eventually someone God built upon their foundation, and many people have been converted in many of those places and certainly even from our own heritage or ancestry that our forefathers probably likely put to death Christian missionaries that came to preach the gospel to them and it was because more ke- kept coming to do that good work that we are in the situation that we find ourselves in today acts chapter 5 acts 5:27 5, acts 5:27 It says, When they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel. And forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So, there, the council, the Jewish rulers and authorities gave them strict orders. They told them, quit teaching in His name. Don't do this anymore. You're not to teach and preach the name of Christ in Jerusalem anymore. And then, what was the apostles' response? We have to obey God rather than man, right? You're telling us not to do this, but the last time we saw Christ on earth, what, did, what was the last thing Christ told them to do? Was to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel. And in Acts chapter 1, He told them to begin doing that in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying... Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So there they will begin in Jerusalem and then to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The law of the Lord will go forth from Zion. It will start in Jerusalem, but it will spread to the nations. And this is one of the significant shifts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right In the Old Covenant, at least from Moses until, well, you could even say from Abraham to Moses to Christ, salvation, the gospel, uh, the knowledge of God, was contained mostly in the nation of israel right it was there amongst those people that the majority of salvation was found and they were not sending out missionaries to go into distant lands and to teach the pagans and the idolaters those who were living in darkness they were not going and teaching them the way to worship god the way of righteousness the way of salvation those people lived in darkness and futility. They worshiped and served their idols year after year after year with no hope of salvation and without anyone coming to them and preaching the gospel to them, right? Salvation was of the Jews. But from Pentecost onward, when the Holy Spirit clothes the uh, apostles from on high with power, they are to take the gospel not just to Jerusalem and to Judea, but even to Samaria, to Gentiles, and then even into the remotest parts of the earth. They are sent out into the world because the salvation is for the Gentiles as well, right? It is too little a thing for God just to give Christ the nation of Israel, that he will give him the nations as well. He will give to him the Gentiles as well, and he will be a savior for them and will call many to redemption even there amongst the Gentiles. And this begins with the apostles. In Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit clothes them with this power, then they begin to preach in Jerusalem. When they do that, it puts the whole city in an uproar. They are commanded by the authorities not to preach anymore, and then they don't listen to them. They continue to do so in disobedience to the authorities. But did they sin against God in doing that? No. Actually, had they been quiet, they would have sinned against God. Because they would have been disobeying Christ. And we cannot disobey Christ. We ought to obey God rather than man. And so that means we need to know the will of God. Whatever God tells us to do, we must obey. And any man that seeks to contradict it, we have to obey God. And then whatever the results are, we just have to take it from the will of God. Because it may not be pleasant. It may be imprisonment. It may, be the compensi- uh, they may uh, confiscate our property. They may fine us. They may beat us. They may even put us to death. But we just have to do the will of God. We ought to obey God rather than man. Also, Acts 17, Acts 17, 22 to 31. This is in the remotest parts of the earth. We're no longer in Jerusalem or Judea or in Samaria, but in Greece, right? In Athens, Greece. And here, speaking to Gentiles, speaking to idolaters those who worship a different God, who have their own national deities, right? Their own heritage of these false gods that they worship, generation after generation after generation. Notice what the Apostle Paul says to them. Verse 30, Acts 17 verse 30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Right, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Not that those people were innocent and not that they escaped the judgment of God, but God had not appointed in the times of ignorance, right, before the day of Pentecost, God did not send missionaries, teachers, to go and to instruct the Gentiles in the way of true religion. They maintained their ignorance generation after generation after generation. And no one came to them and told them to repent. They just lived in darkness all of those years. But now, God is not doing that. Now, His ambassadors are going out into the world. They're going to the Gentile nations who worship and serve their idols, and they're telling them that your idols are... They're nothing, right? They're wood, they're stone, they're the, the, they came from the imagination of men. But we know the true God, and we know the true Savior, who is Jesus Christ, and now God is demanding all men everywhere to what? To repent. To repent from your idols, your dead idols, and to worship and serve the true and living God. Like the Thessalonians, right? When they came to them, they renounced their idols, and they worshiped and served the true God. They turned from idols to the living God. This is what they are going. And all of this is based upon the authority of Christ. His authority as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and as Lord of His Church. He is the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, He has the right to send His ambassadors into the world and to tell them that He is the King and that they should submit to Him. And this is for their benefit, it's for their good, because can there be any greater blessing than being in the kingdom of Christ, than having Him as our Savior and Lord? He's a good king, right? He's the best king that we can have. Why would we want to live in idolatry when we can worship and serve the true and living God who is kind and gracious and merciful and who forgives us of our sins, right, and who will give us an eternal inheritance? So it is a kindness. It's not merely an authoritative mandate, though that certainly is true. But it is an act of love and mercy for God to send out ambassadors into the world to call men to repent of idolatry and to teach them the way of salvation, the true knowledge of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the authority is verse 18. Then the commission. First is to go and make disciples of all the nations. The first thing is to go. You have to go to them because they're not going to come to you. They are living in idolatry. They're over in Greece. They're in Rome. right? They're in uh, Asia Minor at this time. They're in England. They're in modern day France, Germany. All of these areas, this is where the people are. And they're not going to send emissaries from their country to Jerusalem to find Christians... And to say to the Christians, hey, can you teach us about your God and your religion? And then we'll take it back to our people and we'll instruct them in it. That's not the way that it works. They're living in idolatry. They're living in darkness. They don't know any better, right? They are ignorant of the things of God. And how is it that those in darkness, those in ignorance, how do they come? What is the means that God uses to bring knowledge and enlightenment and truth to them? It is not them coming to us, but it is us, the church, going to them. Going into these areas of darkness and taking the light, the gospel, to those people, teaching them the true knowledge of God. This is the way it works. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This is the means that God uses in order to call His elect to salvation. And God could do it in whatever way He wanted. He could do it Himself from heaven. He can speak from heaven if He wants to. Has He not done that before? He has done it. He could send an angel to do it if He wanted to. And the angel could go and communicate it. But part of the blessing that God gives to His church is that He uses us, His people, to be His ambassadors to be his mouthpiece to teach people the word of God. And that is an honor, that God would put his word into our filthy mouths, right? Our lips that are accustomed to cursing men, to vileness, to sin, and that God would so purify us and our tongue that our tongues would have the gospel in them and that we could be the means used by God to instruct people in the way of righteousness. Wouldn't we all, if God said, I want you, I'm going to use you to create worlds, to create planets, to create stars. And I want you to speak, and I'm going to speak through your word and create stars and worlds and planets and animals and all these kinds of things. Wouldn't everyone be falling over themselves saying, oh, this is so wonderful, it's so great. Well, God hasn't called us to do that, to create worlds and planets and these types of things. But he has called us, to be the means, the source, that He uses to call dead men out of the tombs to life through the preaching of the gospel. What greater honor could God bestow upon His church than to give them the gospel in these earthen vessels and to use us as the means of granting salvation to His elect, for Him to share the work of redemption with us, to use us as His hands and feet, This is a great honor and a great blessing from the Lord and one that we should be very grateful for that God has allowed us to do that. Isn't it a great honor for fathers and mothers to be able to teach their children and their grandchildren the gospel? That is a a great honor that God grants to us. And so we should embrace that and be faithful to do it diligently. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tithe, of good things? However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right, the only way one can be saved is by calling on the name of the Lord. We have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But he says, how will people call on Him if they haven't believed in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they've never heard of Him? And how can they hear of Him without a preacher, without someone coming and teaching them? And how can they preach to them unless they are sent? And who is the one who sends out His messengers into the world? Well, ultimately it's Christ. He is the one doing it here. And then secondarily, it is His church. The church raises up ministers, raises up teachers, and then sends them into the world to go and bring good news to the people. They are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. This is the way that the gospel spreads, and this is how it has been since the very beginning. Since the very beginning, it began in Jerusalem, and then the apostles, they went forth into the world, and they took the gospel with them, and then the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, and generation after generation after generation, this is the way the gospel has spread into the nations, right? By the messengers going and preaching the gospel. So he tells them to go. And next, make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples, right? Make disciples by preaching the gospel to them. He doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say elicit decisions. He doesn't say baptize as many people as you can. Though, of course, all of those things should happen in the right place, but it is make disciples, right? And what is a disciple? But one who is like his master, who becomes like his master, who is conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I say that because in many of the modern-day pseudo-evangelism efforts, modern-day revivals, not that we're against revivals if they're true, but in many of the revivals that are produced through human effort and human will, it's just about numbers, it's about converts, it's about decisions. But that's not what Jesus is telling them. It's about making disciples. And what is a disciple but a lifelong faithful follower of Christ? It is not just about getting people to at one time raise their hand to say a prayer to join the church, to make some profession of faith in Christ. Being a disciple is something that begins at a certain point at your conversion, but when does it end? Never, right? We never cease being disciples of Christ. It continues throughout the course of one's life. And this is what they are to do, is to make disciples. Make disciples, just as they were disciples of Christ, and Christ was with them, and Christ instructed them and taught them. So they now are to go to preach the gospel, those who believe, to take them and then disciple them and raise them up so that they mature in their faith and they arrive at adulthood. Isn't that what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter five and chapter six? By this time you ought to be teachers, he says, but you have need for someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Right? The reason he is upset with them or disappointed with them is because his goal is to make them into disciples, for them to mature, to grow in their faith. He's not content with them just being converted to Christ or for them just making a profession and remaining infants the rest of their life. He doesn't want that. He wants them to mature and grow because the commission of Christ is to make disciples. And a disciple should conform more and more to the image of. Of Christ. This is what we should be doing all of our life. Have any of us conformed perfectly to the image of Christ? And if you say you have, you're a liar. See, I know that you haven't. No one has, right? No one has conformed perfectly to the image of Christ. So then, is there room for all of us to grow? Are we all in need of discipleship and of further growth and being made disciples in new ways in our life? It's a lifelong call to be a disciple of Christ. And this is what they are to do Matthew 10 Matthew 10 24 disciples now we also have to ask disciples of whom not disciples of Paul not disciples of Peter not disciples of Apollos not disciples of any man on earth who are we to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We have only one Master and Lord and that is Jesus Christ. There is a proclivity among men to want to attach themselves to certain teachers or to certain men and to be disciples of them. Now certainly we should recognize that God does use men and that if there is someone honorable and someone godly in the faith among us that we should listen and we should learn from them. But ultimately we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And He is our only Master and Lord. This is why Jesus said, Do not call men your fathers and do not call them your teachers. Because you only have one Father and you only have one teacher. Not that we don't have fathers in the proper sense or even teachers in the proper sense. But our ultimate allegiance should not be to these cliques or these groups among men, but to Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ. Matthew 10 verse 24. Matthew ten twenty four A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So there, by making us disciples, we are to be like our teacher. We are the slaves who are to be like our master. And who is our teacher and master but Jesus Christ? The goal of the disciple is to become like Christ, that we would conform more and more to the image of His Son. Right? That's what it says in Romans chapter eight, in Romans eight twenty-eight and twenty-nine, when it says that all things work together for good to those who call God to, uh, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then in verse twenty-nine, He says. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Conformity to the image of His Son. This is the goal of the Christian life, is that our life, our mind, our thoughts, our values, the way that we live, our words, our actions, that all of them would more and more through the course of our life conform ...to the life of Christ. That we would think the way that Jesus thinks... ...that we would speak the way that He does... ...that we would love the way that Christ loves... right? ...that our life would reflect His glory. This is what God has called us to do... ...and we are to be conformed in that way. And here in Matthew chapter 28... ...this making of disciples is to be in all the nations. To all the nations not just to the Jews and not just in those regions surrounding Jerusalem, but all the nations, which means the entire globe, right? Wherever people are found in this world, right, on this globe, then we should go to them and try to make disciples of all the nations, of all the nations. And this would be in Isaiah 49. We mentioned it or we referenced it briefly, or alluded to it earlier. Isaiah chapter 49 Verse 6, this is the Father speaking to the Son, to Christ. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the uh, preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, "...to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you." It's too small, too small a thing that the death of Christ and the benefits of that death would reach only to the physical descendants of Abraham, only to the elect amongst the Jews but also He's going to bring in the nations as well. He's going to send out this message of salvation, and this salvation is going to reach the end of the earth. And He will raise up and save people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation under the heavens. And they will be there in the end around the throne worshiping both Jew and Gentile alike. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 2 it talks about this wall of separation that existed between Jew and Gentile, he has broken it down, right? Through his blood, through his body, Christ has destroyed this wall of separation that kept the Jews and Gentiles apart. And now, as the gospel goes into all the nations, and if there is in a town believing Jews and believing Gentiles, do they start the first Baptist... uh, No, well, yeah, first Baptist... Jewish church of Thessalonica and the first Baptist Gentile church of Thessalonica. That's not what they're doing. What are they doing? Jew and Gentile are together in one body, right? In one church because they all have one Master and Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're all called in the same calling, right? Through the same gospel, the same spirit, the same baptism, the same Lord and Savior. So all the nations is where they are to go. And then also... ...baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here, as the gospel goes out and as it is preached, those who believe in that gospel are to be baptized into the church or baptized as a sign, a symbol of their identifying with Christ, of their salvation, that they belong to Him. And this is the admittance, the symbol the sign, the ordinance of the new covenant upon one's conversion or one's salvation, that they belong to Christ and it is a symbol that their sins have been washed away, washed away through His blood, that they are His and now they are entering into His church, His body and identifying with Him and they're baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, showing the triune God. The triune God and our salvation is the result of Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together in perfect harmony together. The Father choosing and electing. He's the one who has ordained salvation. He's the one that sent the Son. And it was because of the Father's love for us that He sent His Son into the world. The Son is the one who came and actually took on human flesh, who lived a perfect life for us, who died on the cross for our sins, Who was raised for our justification, who is our great high priest over the household of God, who is at the right hand of God the Father and is now interceding for us. So, in terms of accomplishing what is necessary for redemption, it is the Son who brings this about. The Father ordained it, and then the Son is the one that accomplishes it. And then, who is the one that applies it or actually brings it to bear in the life of the believer? It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. Who applies the blood of Christ to us so that it washes us of all of our sins. Who empowers us and sanctifies us and causes us to walk in newness of life. He is the seal by which we know that we belong to God. So is salvation the work of the Father? Yes. Is it the work of the Son? Yes. Is it the work of the Spirit? Yes. And if any of them are taken out, then there is no salvation. And all of them are equally God. One God. In three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And our faith is in the triune God. And we are baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. All here as well, they're placed together. Showing that it's impossible that the Son, Jesus, would be less divine than the Father. Or of a different nature than the Father. Or that the Spirit would be less divine than the Son or the Father. Or of a different nature that they are all together and that believers are baptized in the name of father son and spirit it has to be that they all possess the same divine nature they are all equally god the father is not more god than the son and the spirit is not less god than the son or father but all are equally god though three persons distinct persons the father is not the son the son is not the father the spirit is not the son the spirit is not the father the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit. But they are all equally God, and they all work together in perfect harmony to bring about our redemption, which is why we are baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Here, notice as well that baptism is secondary to being made a disciple. First is the going and the preaching of the gospel. Then there is the making of the disciple. And then those who are made disciples are then baptized into the church. Not that when it says make disciples, it means that you have to wait 40 years for them to be baptized until they prove that they are true and serious disciples. Well, of course, that's not what it means. But that they have made their profession of faith to follow Christ, and they are baptized into the church at that point and then their discipleship continues. Making disciples is referring to that original conversion or what takes place, and then it continues throughout their life. But baptism is not the means to produce salvation. It is a consequence of the preaching of the gospel and of salvation, but it is not the primary focus in the ministry. The primary focus is always what? It has to be the Word of Christ, the preaching of the Word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void." Christ did not send me to baptize. Now here, Jesus says that we are to baptize them. So is Paul contradicting Jesus when he says this? Well, of course not. Because baptism is a consequence of believing, of what happens when one believes. But the way of salvation, the way that men are converted, is through the preaching of the gospel. And that's why he goes into these places not looking to baptize men, but to preach the gospel to them. And then, when people believe, then they are baptized. Then they are baptized after that. Okay, then next. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. After they are made disciples, that is their conversion, after they are baptized as a sign of their belonging to Christ and their allegiance to Him and admitted into the church, then they are to be taught... To observe all that I commanded you. There is then teaching. How can one be a disciple and not be taught? How can we know the will of God if someone doesn't teach us what the will of God is? And does anyone have perfect understanding of the will of God at their conversion or any other point in their life? No one does. So there's the need for us to always be taught the will of God, to come to greater understanding. In our Christian faith. Again, notice that in all of this, it is the teaching of the Word of God. The going assumes the preaching of the gospel. Even their baptism assumes that they understand what it means. And how do we understand what baptism means? But by the Word of Christ. And now, their sanctification is teaching the Word of God, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is similar to Acts 20 when the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, notice there he says in verse 26, Acts 20, 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. Right? We need to be taught the whole counsel of God. Everything that Christ has commanded. And what part of the Bible came from Christ? All of it, right? From Genesis to Revelation. Every book in the Bible, every chapter, every verse in the Bible is the Word of Christ. It is what Christ has commanded us. So how much of the Bible do we need to be taught? We need to be taught all of it, right? Over and over and over again. And this is the way we are built up in our faith. And the means that God uses to bring this about is through teachers. God gives these gifts to His church. He gives teachers for the equipping of the saints to teach, to explain what the Bible means, what it, what it says, what we are to do to explain that to the people. 1 Timothy 4 verse 11. 1 Timothy four eleven says, "...prescribe and teach these things." Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay Close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So it is to teach these things public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, to yourself, your life, the way that you live, and also to your teaching and persevere in them, because in so doing, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you, to the people that are under your charge, because our salvation is dependent on the Word of Christ. This is why we are to be taught all that Christ has commanded us. Everything. We need to know the will of God. We shouldn't neglect any portion of Scripture. Now, of course. There is the need of prudence. We need to have wisdom in how to deal with people and what people can understand, right? If we're teaching the young ones or even a new believer, I'm probably not going to do a Bible study on Ezekiel 40, chapter 40 to 48 with him or the book of Leviticus with him. We would probably start with something very simple and easy to understand like the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. Not that those are simple and easy to understand, but they're more accessible to young minds or to those who are infants or weak in faith than something like Ezekiel 40 to 48. However, is Ezekiel 40 to 48 in the Bible? Yes, Yes. and who gave it? Christ. So we do need to read it and understand it to the best of our ability, what it is teaching us in its usefulness to the church. So we need to do all of these things. And that's why I think the best way of teaching is to do verse by verse through books of the Bible. That way you are teaching all that Christ has commanded. And then lastly, the assurance. This is a very big task. He's calling us to go into all the world, to distant lands, to strange people who have strange tongues and customs and preach the gospel to them. How will we be successful? How will we be able to do Such a daunting task. Well, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are assured that though Christ is not with us visibly and physically, right? He's not standing right here. We can't touch him and see him with our own eyes. But is he with us spiritually? Is he with us invisibly? Is he here in our presence? Yes. And when we go and we take the gospel to someone and we're sharing to them the words of life, who is with us all the time? Christ is with us, and He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us. And even if a band of marauders comes up, some rascally fellows from Proverbs come up and surround us and begin to threaten us and taunt us and start beating us with clubs, is that because Christ has forsaken us? Has He left us? Is He not there with us? No, He's even there. I will never leave you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is always with His church, and He's always with His people, and He will never leave us or forsake us. And He is the one that gives us the power, the strength, the ability to do any of these things. It all comes from Christ. So, He is the one that does it. All we are called to do is plant to water, to do what God calls us to do, but He is the one that will be with us and He is the one who will equip us and He gives the growth. This is the same as, remember when Elisha and his servant and they were surrounded, they were in the city and the foreign army had surrounded them and the servant was terrified because of this army that had surrounded them during the night. And Elisha told him that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed that God would open his eyes, and God opened his eyes, and he saw that surrounding that foreign army were a whole host, a whole army of angels from God. And that those spiritual forces that were with Elisha and his servant, though there were only two of them there in the city, and visibly and physically, they would be no match to this great army. Yet, God was with them. His presence was with them. His angels were with them, protecting them. And actually, Elisha took the whole company of them hostage, right? Took them because God struck them with blindness. And then He led them there into the city. Also, in Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, when the Apostle Paul faces such a daunting Opposition. Notice what happens. Acts 18.5 But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So there, there was a great ministry that needed to happen in the city of Corinth. And though there was severe opposition to the Apostle Paul, the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid any longer. Up to this point, he had had some fear, right? He, there was apprehensions of what these people were going to do to him. But the Lord comes and assures him, don't be afraid any longer you have no reason to be afraid keep on speaking do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you no man can do anything to us we are invincible if it is the Lord's will what can man do to us if God is with us there's nothing that they can do they cannot harm us they cannot lay a finger on us apart from the will of our Father who is in heaven so do we have any reason to fear man No reason to fear. But instead, be faithful to the Lord, do His will, preach His gospel. So this is the call, the charge for us as a church in our families, in our homes, in our society, our community, wherever we go, wherever we can gain an audience, this is what we ought to be doing. And then however we can promote this in the world as well, we should be doing that too. Whatever way we can support it. Uh, financially, by sending others, or if God is pleased to raise up someone from our own body that we can send somewhere else, then we should be doing those things. And whatever we can to advance the message of salvation to the ends of the earth, this is what we ought to do. We are the beneficiaries of such efforts from the past, and we ought to continue doing that and then being faithful as well in in our own church, our own body, our own families as well.